Hello, I am Dr Richard Booker, I am a haematologist in the West Midlands, England, and this is Don't Just Read the Guidelines. Don't Just Read the Guidelines is a podcast that explores ideas and research the cutting edge of medicine, especially anything to do with blood. I aim to provide a platform to incredible people you probably haven't heard from before, to share their work, ideas and most importantly, their unfounded opinions. We will take you beyond the guidelines, into the evidence behind them, and most interestingly, into the sticky world of opinion and conjecture. If you enjoy this episode, subscribe to this podcast on your preferred platform, and don't forget to leave a review. If you have something to share or would like to come on the podcast, find me on Twitter, at Richard Booker. On this first of a show, we're going to start with the amazing Pip Nicholson. Pip is a clinical lecturer in haematology at the University of Birmingham and haematology registrar at the University Hospitals Birmingham. He's also founder and chair of the amazing haematology research network, Hemestar UK. Pip's interest is in platelet physiology and he has a long-standing research interest in how ibrutinib results in platelet problems and bleeding. More recently, he's been doing some work on vaccine-induced thrombotic thrombocytopenia, VIT, and talking to Pip about this was too good an opportunity to miss. So in the podcast, Pip and I don't really have time to go into the clinical side of it, but I'll just give a brief overview for those of you who aren't so familiar. So this is vaccine-induced thrombotic thrombocytopenia, and it shares many hallmarks with heparin-induced thrombocytopenia, um, which is a platelet consumptive process that's immune-mediated um, and then leads to platelet activation and platelet consumption, causing blood clots. Um, with VIT, um, there's obviously been no prior heparin exposure, but yet this platelet activation occurs and most notably these blood clots occur in unusual sites like the cerebral venous sinuses. Um, it seems to be really difficult to treat in some cases um, but the cornerstone is um, anticoagulation with a non-heparin anticoagulant and then trying to turn off the immune process with steroids, intravenous immunoglobulin and plasma exchange with even things like rituximab being used for very severe cases. Okay so that's a brief overview, let's get on with this interview from Pip. So, hi Pip, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thanks very much, Rich, for inviting me. Um, I thought we could just kick off by um, you just recapping what Heemstar is, um, because we're both involved in this. Uh, you're the chair, I'm the communications lead, um, and it's a really interesting model for promoting research. So just tell me a little bit more about Heemstar briefly, if you would. Uh, so Hemestar is a network of registrars, haematology registrars, and sometimes more junior doctors. And we have a reason d'etre is to further research in non-malignant haematology and to involve registrars in that research such that they get training in becoming research active for when they're consultants. And that, in a nutshell, is what Hemestar is. And um, if people want to get involved, what, what do they need to do? Is there an application form or, or can they just sign up? There's no real application form needed. Just visit uh, hemestar.org and there is a contact us page on there. Um, put a message on there and we'll see it. Awesome. So when did Hemestar start? I can never remember this. You have told me before. Uh, so it was 2017 and I was a um, West Midlands representative for the NIHR local clinical research network and I was attending the uh, NIHR national CRN meetings and I got talking with Cheng Hok To, the then chair of the uh, network, and he suggested um, that 
there was a network in anesthetics that seemed to be doing good things, uh, something called Raft. And uh, an offhand comment of, did he think, did I think that we could emulate that in haematology? And I went away and did some thinking. And then along with um, Michael Desborough, who's uh, some subsequently gone on to be a consultant, uh, we started the the inception of Hemestar and, and then it's gradually and then sort of snowballed since. And as I understand, I mean, we've had some some good successes so far, really, with projects and, and trials and things. Do you want to just give me a few highlights? Um, so I guess the the main exciting big things that we've been involved in have been um, helping to support the flight trial, which was the first uh, RCT, first line RCT for treatment in ITP that's been done for decades. Um, and that was comparing uh, MMF and prednisolone with prednisolone alone. Okay. Um, and uh, that is about to be published in the New England Journal of Medicine, I believe. Um, then there has been our sort of own conception, which is the flash mob project. Yeah. And there have been two done of those so far. The first one, which was done in 2018 and is now in submission uh, with the, well, in journal submission, uh, was in IVIG use in ITP and looking at, um, it's essentially an audit comparing, uh, well, looking at whether people are dosing IVIG as per the restrictive dosing guidelines of one gram per kilogram as a one-off dose. And we found that the answer was no, not really. People aren't <laughs> doing that. And But hang on, have a look, because we collected so much data on so many patients, we could actually compare the two, the, the sort of the, that restrictive regime with the more common regime that people are doing, which was one gram per kilo over two consecutive days. And oh, it looks like there's no difference in uh, platelet count response. And that's, um, that's, a, that's a really niche project, isn't it? I guess, how, how did that come about? Because, because clearly no one's using IVIG for every ITP patient, but it must be used a lot. And I guess if you're telling me that one gram per kilo on one day is the same as one gram per kilo on two consecutive days, that's going to have some quite important cost cost implications. Was that, was that the rationale for doing the study? Um, so I think because of the cost implications and because of the increasing difficulty in in sourcing IVIG it's a fractionated plasma product and yeah. it's where and uh, where it's being made is getting increasingly limited um, there is effectively a shortage of it and so NHS England is necessarily constricting its use and so that then came into that's why those guidelines were produced and mm. the ITP forum led by Quentin Hill sort of looking at that guidance thinking well that's all very well and good but is that actually what we're doing are we following this and right. and that, that then he saw Heemstar as a platform to be able to check that and got in contact with us and that's how that started Time. but yeah it is quite niche you're right but it could have significant cost implications yeah, absolutely. Say, um ivig is like um I think it's about three and a half thousand pounds per dose effectively wow. for a for a seventy kilogram average adult, mm. which we all know isn't average now. Um, yeah. <laughs> and so if you're saving three and a half thousand pounds per patient, um, it racks up to about a million yeah. pounds a year. And I guess that this VIT this VIT business is going to be accentuating that shortage as well, isn't it? Well, yeah, because we're using I mean, I guess VIT, there aren't that many patients. Mm. Um 
I think there have been, I think the, the current rate is approximately, I guess there's 50 a week or something like that in the UK. Okay. At the and I think each of those people are getting two doses of IVIG at one gram per yeah. kilo. So yeah, I guess it could be. It's interesting how you've just said that people are getting one gram per kilo. Is that, you mean on two consecutive days, completely against our observations of ITP with no evidence base? Um, but then there isn't, of course, there's no evidence base <laughs> at all. But yeah, it seems to be what's being given. Yeah. Okay, fair enough. Um, and just briefly, um, we touched on the other flash mobs. We've um, we've done TTP as well, haven't we? Yeah, so that was then done the next year, where um, in collaboration with Marie Scully and looking to try and help basically work out where the um, where the blocks are and the delays are in getting patients who are recently who are newly diagnosed with TTP access to plasma exchange. Mm. So where are the delays in that process? Because our national guidance says that we should be starting plasma exchange within eight hours mm. and um so that's obviously a, we all know we who treat ttp know that's challenging mm. and i guess there are some we've all got our own opinion on why that's challenging but probably we need more than just opinion in order to try and shape a national service and okay. so that flash mob project was designed to tease out what are the main delays in 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 treating uh ttp i guess the um the the challenging thing about that project was that patients were often transferred from one hospital to another yeah and it was trying to track them across that <laughs> but without breaching patient confidentiality uh so yeah. that that and we did manage to surmount that and actually i think in the end we although i think we had a total of about 200 patients data submitted but where we had either one full uh, episode from one hospital or we started in one hospital and then finished the data collection in the other. I think we had around about 140 patients okay. uh, with that sort of information. So these, I mean, these projects are a lot of work. And just to remind all our listeners, this is completely out of the goodness of people's hearts. We don't have any funding for this, do we? Um, so no, uh, the funding that we get, we, we do, we have managed to source some funding for each of these projects. Mm -hmm. Um, but they have entirely gone into paying for the backbone of the project, which is the um, the sort of the encrypted server space okay. that holds the data. But yeah, okay. there's no no one's time is being paid for here. It's incredibly cost effective and good value for money for the public, really. I think, isn't it? And um, the um, the manuscripts for those two flash mobs are they submitted or in preparation? I know things have been presented at various places, but have we have we got any further with the with the uh, papers? So yeah, the uh, currently the uh, the IVIG flash mob is with the British Journal of Hematology. It's been submitted, um, and the second flash mob, uh, is the manuscripts being written. I've seen the first draft, and okay. there are some tweaks to be made. I feel a little disingenuous because I am the, one of the authors on the IVIG, and I do know, but I'm just trying to let our listeners know as well. Lovely. Okay, um, so I think that's enough about Hemstar. The reason I think. I wanted to uh, talk to you about um, VIT is that you have become a bit of an expert on it, um, as have a few people in the uh, most recent weeks. But as a pre-existing platelet guru, um, I think you're in a good position to try and explain what on earth is going on. Now, I think most of our uh, inaugural listeners will be people that <clears throat> have some experience of VIT or have at least seen a few cases or at least know that it resembles HIT. So I don't want to go into the details in too much um well in too much detail about the the clinical situation i really want to rack your brains about the pathophysiology and and how you think we can uh, 
we can um, tackle some of these these issues in the lab, especially as well. So, um, I mean, are you happy with the with the name VIT? As I was keen on VIPIT before, but I think it looks like everyone's gone for VIT. I think in a way I quite like VIT because it's VIT with two T's and it resembles um, HIT uh, mm. with two T's. Though I think our experience of the vaccine induced rather than heparin induced is that there is more, it's more pro-thrombotic. And I guess that's maybe reflected in the fact that the thrombotic part of the two T's is first in VIT, whereas it's, I think, second in HIT. Do you think it's more thrombotic because these patients are presenting later? I guess with HIT patients, a lot of them are having their platelets, you know, uh, looked at every day. Um, and we are preempting the sort of the clinical syndrome of HIT and just seeing thrombocytopenia. Or do, you, do you think it's genuinely a sort of a more aggressive physiology? I think there's probably a bit of both. Mm. So... It's certainly true what you say that when people develop HIT, they are in hospital almost almost by definition. Mm. And so it's being picked up early. But that said, patients with VIT, their syndrome is developing within sometimes within five days of the vaccine. So that seems pretty rapid. Yeah. And whether you would pick that up in time uh, as a hospital inpatient, I don't know. That The thing that makes me think it's perhaps a more aggressive disease of its own accord is the fact when you, uh, the sort of the D-dimer levels in these patients, the fact that they are um, they have DIC, um, and that when you measure the anti-PF4 antibodies by the ELISA testing, they are so much higher than mm. the the levels that we're seeing in HIT. Okay, okay. So just briefly explain to me what you think is going on with the pathophysiology, because this is intriguing. And you know, people are finding PF4 antibodies, but are these truly PF4 antibodies? So there is debate um, in terms of that particular question. Um, either it is that there is something within the vaccine or something within what the, the product that is made by the vaccine the, mm. that is um, binding to PF4 and making it some kind of novel epitope that then is, is, is an antigen that is being newly picked up. Mm. Or... Um, Another theory is that actually the the ELISA testing that we're doing for the for PF for anti PF four antibodies has false positives and is is known to be false positive when you have immune complexes. Okay. And so whether actually we're getting immune complexes developing as a result of the vaccination and that is sort of giving false positives in that that particular mm. anti PF four antibodies. And one of the reasons for thinking that is that uh, the um, the, the, the more cr chemiluminescence assays, such as the Accustar, uh, measuring anti-PF4 antibodies, are so what's, what's pretty that? much is always that, negative. Is that one of the assays that, is that like a rapid immunoassay or gel, the gel thing? That's the that's the, the rapid, most standard screening test okay. for PF4 so antibodies. Fine. And so in theory, it's more sensitive. Yeah. So it's odd that that's negative. Okay. when the ELISA, you know, more cumbersome ELISA testing is positive. Okay. And the functional assays are negative as well, are they? Or is the is functional that HIT assays. Mm. So they're, it, it, it's difficult. You have to be a bit more nuanced, I think. So mm. the, the screening part of the functional assay, where you just add patient serum to donor platelets, mm. which in HIT would be negative, is positive. Right, okay. Because the, do the, the patient serum on its own, without the addition of heparin, is sufficient to activate platelets. 
Okay. And actually, when in hit, you would then add a low concentration of heparin, and that would enhance any, that would cause that platelet activation. Whereas with VIT, certainly the work I've done and published or attempting to publish is that that actually blocks platelet activation and other groups have shown similar things. I know there have been some anecdotal reports of people treating these early cases with low molecular weight heparin and people making a full recovery. So that would maybe lend that some credibility. I mean, I, I, I know it's, it's because of the similarities to HIT. It's very mm. difficult to just make a recommendation and say, yeah, you know what, yeah, heparin's going to be fine. Yeah. My gut feeling is that heparin's fine and actually yeah. might be beneficial in more ways than one. Yeah. More than just the anticoagulation, it might actually block the platelet activation. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's it's really intriguing, I think. And um, but the, I think the problem with trying to understand this is that as a sort of a almost a lay <laughs> a lay platelet person is understanding the assays, and I, I I don't really want to get into that, but they are there is there is there is a lot of complexity there, isn't there? Um, so these platelet and well these whatever these antibodies are are, are activating platelets, I guess, and and that's causing this thrombosis and thrombocytopenia. Just tell me a bit more about the platelet activation because that's something that you. You've, you've done a lot of work on um yeah sure um so the antibodies are activating platelets by a, a receptor called fc gamma r2a Catchy. which yeah uh, <laughs> i mean fc so it, it they they bind to they're a low affinity receptor for the fc region of an antibody so what's and, the physiological role of that receptor what i mean what's the point um I guess it enables, um, it's, an, it's, it's almost like another optimization method. So it's, part, it's right. almost like having platelets being part of the immune system. So you've got pathogens tagged with, um, with antibody, and then platelets will come along, bind to that, um, that antibody and will activate. And, and you know, I think early, early immune responses are you find a little, you know, they actually will wall off the pathogen with a small clot. Okay. But, then you've got activated platelets which are then targeted to the spleen um and then will be removed along with pathogen okay okay so it's that removal by the spleen that i guess is a bit more um is the sort of the physiological protection against thrombosis in that situation is that is that right okay yeah okay okay um and then what happens in the platelet just talk me through that because that's your your sort of area <laughs> very nice I, I know so there are three different receptors on platelets that all signal via a similar method. Well, actually, there's four, um, but we'll go with it. So that, um, and it's so there. There are platelet receptors broadly are split into G protein coupled receptors, um, like uh, that for ADP, which is where your P2Y12 inhibitors like clopidogrel and ticagrelor work, but also with tyrosine kinase linked receptors, which, when clustered. Um, will start a tyrosine kinase cascade of phosphorylation of various different kinases, mm -hmm. which ultimately result in calcium release within the platelet and then platelet activation. And that um, that actually that that tyrosine kinase cascade is similar across all the platelet receptors that that signal via this, but also it's very similar to other hematopoietic cells like the B cell receptor, for instance, of, will okay. signal via the same method. So I guess. Again, I'm, I'm prompting into uh, sort of probing into your work and paper, given that these are tyro tyrosine kinase cascade pathways. Clearly, there's some opportunities to try and block those. Um, just tell me what you've what you've done to that regard. Um, so, I mean, so I mean, within the paper, we we have shown that it is indeed FC gamma R2A that is mediating the 
the platelet activation in vitro by using a blocking antibody fragment to that receptor. And that then so gave us hope that actually, yeah, it is that it is that receptor and we should try tyrosine mm. kinase inhibitors to see if we can block block it as well. And pretty much every tyrosine kinase inhibitor that we've used that we know targets a kinase within that cascade has blocked that in vitro okay. plate activation. So we're talking about that the main ones that we use are SARC, BTK and SIC are the main inhibitors that we've used. Okay, so just give me some drug names. So, I mean, the, the main, the BTK inhibitor that people will know who are listening to this podcast is ibrutinib. Okay. Um, but then there are other second and third generation inhibitors. And we've worked particularly with a third generation inhibitor called Rils ibrutinib. And one of the reasons we've particularly chosen that one is because it's got some traction in ITP. It's being clinically trialed in ITP. Okay. So those that know about ibrutinib will know that it, causes bleeding and so you wouldn't really want to use it in a thrombocytopenic patient um whereas rilzabrutinib uh another btk inhibitor doesn't have a side effect of bleeding that we know of and okay. is being used successfully in trials without bleeding in patients with single figure platelet counts okay so those would be the, you know those so the btk inhibitors with um sick inhibitors um we've used uh fostamatinib which is used in ITP currently, mm. um, and also entospletinib, which is currently in trials for CLL um, okay. and other uh, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Um, actually, the, the uh, slightly frustratingly, I guess, the, the fostamatinib, the active metabolite of fostamatinib that we used, R406, didn't block this. Okay. And but it does, but at doses that would actually were blocking other tyrosine kinase link receptors on platelets. So we were puzzled and unsure as to why that one doesn't work. And part of it, actually, we've 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 used it in other assays too. And it's just it's perhaps just not a very robust inhibitor, is what okay. I probably is my okay. honest opinion of that drug. Okay. Would you would you advocate plowing in with some ibrutinib then for the next patient with it? Oh, it's a nice and cheap way of treating these patients, isn't it? <laughs> is it cheaper um, than uh, IVIG? I, I don't know. Well, I guess it's thousands of pounds per month, isn't it? But if you're only yeah. going to use it, it depends how long you're going to use it for. Yeah. Um, I probably wouldn't plough in with a brutinib um, mm. on the basis of uh, the, the bleeding side effects and the, the fact that actually all I've shown is, is in vitro data. We've not done anything clinically, and it's very dangerous to go off and treat a patient because what, what if we're just seeing some kind of random effect on platelets that isn't actually anything to do with the pathophysiology? So, I mean, you guys looked at healthy donor platelets and patient serum, didn't you? Um, yeah. Have you got any plans to look at patient platelets? Clearly, that's more difficult to work with, which is, I'm guessing, why you did what you did. Uh, but... More difficult to get hold of yeah. is probably the first thing, and then fairly difficult to work with because you can't freeze it, really. Mm. Um, but... So after our first tranche of work, we've we've set out a perhaps we're currently working through a slightly wider, more um, ambitious work plan. But that includes looking at donor platelets, okay. uh, sorry, looking at patient platelets. Um, so and I guess a they're thrombocytopenic. So that makes it challenging. If the blood has been spun down before we get it, um, that then can activate platelets and so can produce false positives. But what we've in the we've got a little bit of data on this so far, and what we've found is that certain so there, there doesn't seem to be any increase in the platelet activation, the classical markers of platelet activation, um, 
but there is there are signs of pre-activated platelets in that uh, a platelet receptor called GP6 seems to be in lower levels, which, mm-hmm. and GP6 is known to be shed when platelets are activated. Okay. But one of the things that we are wondering about is whether the the VIT serum or the VIT antibody is not activating platelets in a classical way, but is causing something called procoagulant platelets. So rather than producing P-selectin, activating their their integrin, the the GP2B3A and cross-linking, we're actually, it's producing, it's causing platelets to form, to put phosphatidylserine on their surface, which then acts as a nidus for clot formation, and also causes platelets to sort of lise and become platelet microparticles. And so that will potentially explain why this condition is more prothrombotic than other other things that activate okay. um okay that's all really interesting um i think i read somewhere about the role of aspirin in these patients is there any is there any, any role for aspirin at all so yeah i mean aspirin is a sort of more global inhibitor uh, of platelets um so it inhibits the secondary feedback second secondary mediator feedback and so actually does play a role in this particular pathophysiology as well um so actually, and in fact, we've we've used a COX inhibitor in dimethacin um, in our paper and found that it blocks, uh, as well as a P2Y12 inhibitor and found that mm-hmm. it blocks. And again, that's to do with the, its blockade of the secondary mediator feedback of, of um, thromboxane A2 and um, and ADP after pl- the, that initial platelet okay. activation. Why didn't you use um, aspirin? We didn't use aspirin. Um, because that's incredibly hard to use in vitro. Okay. Believe it or not, there is absolutely no um, agreed concentration of using aspirin in a test tube that models physiologically what's going on in a patient. And okay. everyone, if you ask any, if you ask ten people, you'll get ten different opinions. And so we felt it best to just avoid all that controversy by okay. using something where we we know it's a COX inhibitor and we know what dose it should be used at in okay. okay. Um But yeah, those both block this as well okay so we're not going to put everyone aspirin in this situation then i think it so i've got two some thoughts on this is that <laughs> i think it would work in that i think it would probably block what's happening and block the activation of platelets but if this is something that's only happening in one in a hundred thousand people mm. and aspirin if you put everyone on aspirin what's their rate of major hemorrhage two percent yeah, yeah so then rather than getting a one in a hundred thousand you're getting a one in 50 event yeah so that's why i wouldn't use it but it could be used because what we don't know is how long is this effect lasting for after after the the platelets have dropped Mm. they become thrombotic you've given them ivig treatment you've given them dexamethasone and the initial phase of the disease is is resolved Mm. how long are these antibodies persisting for and in those patients that have declared themselves at risk of this if there is any sign in any of the literature that this effect continues i think there may be a role for aspirin or other antiplatelet drug, okay. such as rilzabrutinib, et cetera, in, those, in that group of patients. Okay. Well, that's awesome. Um, for the last five, 10 minutes, I just want to get a bit more philosophical, if we can. Um, clearly, this is a new vaccine platform. And I think we could all agree that it's an immensely powerful tool to have in the arsenal of fighting pandemics. You know, coming up with a vaccine within literally months of the, of the, the virus being discovered and having it into, um, not even into... Th- well, into clinical practice for under 12 months is it's nothing short of amazing, really. Um, clearly, if we think that this uh, incidence of VIT is around one to 40,000, one in 50,000, do you think that's 
Do you think that's too high? Do you think that's too high to justify ongoing use of this vaccine? Certainly when COVID cases are looking as low as they are at the moment. I think, yeah, I think it depends on what the alternatives are and what the other mm. risks are involved. And I guess one of the shames about this is that it was the AZ vaccine that was looking like it was the cheapest to produce and therefore the cheapest to sell and was going to be the one that was rolled out to the mm. developing world. And whether we can still do that in, with things are at the moment is a very difficult question. Mm. Um, I I would think that it's if we can work out how to treat this safely or how to prevent it mm. or identify who is at risk and mm. prophylactically treat them, then I think it's fine. Do you know um, if there's been any work going on to identify people at a higher risk? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, this is another thing that, that we've been involved with to a degree with Heemstar, but mm. the MHRA have very amazingly quickly put together a, a database of patients who have been you know, yellow carded and they've sought out all the sort of background demographic details mm. on all these patients and are trying to find common factors that say increase that say we well, have yeah, these patients are at increased risk um i mean one interesting observation is that actually most of the patients where this is happening are white caucasian and there i think there's a few in the uh, asian population and almost none in the black and african caribbean um, okay. populations and so that would imply some kind of genetic risk mm. and whether that's a you know i would wonder whether it's some kind of polymorphism in fc gamma r2a um, that makes it more susceptible maybe they've maybe they've got more copies of that receptor on their platelets or maybe it's something to do with how well the platelets bind pf4 um that makes the difference because we um, we know that there is some something similar in HIT in that the HIT antibodies, when you're when you're measuring, trying to measure functional HIT assays, only some donors' platelets will act as useful platelets to use in those assays. Okay. Okay. And so only some that makes me think only some donors are going to be susceptible to this, and that's probably a genetic thing. I think that's really encouraging. Clearly, that AZ vaccine's got, as you said, has got big advantages for use in the developing world. I guess we have to be really careful about, you know, giving a third-rate vaccine to the third world, don't we? And I think that's a, a, a PR disaster possibly waiting to happen. But as you said, it's all it's all balance of risks, isn't it? Yeah, I totally agree with you. Okay. Um, I mean, do you think we'll be using the AZ vaccine in the UK in six, twelve months' time? Because I don't think the Americans are going to use it, are they? No, I don't think they are. Um, I think I think quite a lot of the work that's going on now and in I, sort of identifying the pathophysiology of mm. it and identifying whether it truly is unique to the um, AZ vaccine or whether actually, as some reports say, you know, there's four cases reported by the FDA of the same with the, the adenoviral Johnson-Johnson vaccine, is whether it's sort of, is it whether if we can find a treatment for it, then actually, yeah, no, I think we'll be using it. If we can't, then we'll probably, I guess, time will tell whether we're using something else. Um, but it's whether it puts the kibosh on the whole adenoviral vector program and not I just. I know, it's, it's just such a shame, vaccine. isn't it? It's such a shame and it's all to do with risk benefit, I guess. I mean, you're making the point about having a treatment. I guess in some of these cases, and I've seen three where I work, um, the, the, the process is just so aggressive that it's actually not the intervention that's the problem. It's, it's working out what's going on. I suppose that the cases that we saw were were early on in this in this um, 
in in the uh, the time course of recognizing VIT as a disease. Um, but my worry is that some of these patients, even now, are presenting in in extremis with extremely high clot burden, and your opportunity to treat is 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 very very small. And and even then, perhaps the the the, the scales are tipped so far in the balance of a poor outcome that any treatment is is going to be ineffectual. Um, I mean, my feeling is that we're probably not going to be using this vaccine in the, in, in the next six, 12 months. But again, I'm not I'm not, <laughs> I'm not the expert. But I think in the UK where people are um, where we've got a low a low incidence and hopefully a low incidence going forward, I think it's going to be extremely challenging to convince people to have this or to at least convince the regulators. I think the British public are amazing, really. They've just kind of gone along with things um, and I, we have to tread that that really careful line between losing patient confidence or losing public confidence and honesty and transparency. And perhaps that honesty and transparency angle has been lost somewhat. I don't know if you've got any feelings about that. Um, so, I, yeah, I'd, I'd agree with you there that, that there certainly when when the early days of this of this bit being announced, it was certainly... <laughs> we would have to be very careful with the communications we were putting out about mm. it. And we were sort of like, we can't announce this as a problem because mm. it will derail the, um, the vaccination programme. Yeah. And I sort of feel as a clinician and you know wanting to do the most good for the most people, that we sort of felt quite strange and quite mm. uncomfortable with, with that. I'm, I'm very pleased now that we seem that we're far more, it's, it, I guess it hasn't taken all that long for us to be openly talking about it, mm. but I feel like we were somewhat stifled initially yeah. talking about it i feel like the media's probably helped to not blow things out of all proportion um which is a saving grace but again i think in the interest of transparency people need to have the information and and i <clears throat> my feeling is you know if your risk of covid complications is lower than the risk of vit then you know you should probably be not having this vaccine but you know i've always been an advocate of vaccines all the way through the, the pandemic and um, it's been amazing that we've got them out in in such quick time but to me that risk at one in 40,000 in, in people who are fit with low low risk in like low individual risk obviously there's a, there's a there's a public health risk but a low individual risk surely that that risk benefit is is perhaps in 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 favor of not having that ASA vaccine particularly when when others are others are available Exactly. I was gonna. I was just gonna add to the end of your sentence, particularly where other yeah. vaccines are available. Yeah. So when it comes to sort of sub-Saharan Africa and things, clearly the guys in in those countries have got many other problems other than COVID to worry about. And hopefully, this this sort of vaccine platform can extend to other to other uh, other diseases as well. But clearly, it's a it's a good option. And you know, if we if we in the West can can do lots of work on the epidemiology and and the genome sequencing, which I know is going on, looking at these cases, then perhaps it will still be a safe option for for Africa, which would be which would be ideal, really. But I just I just feel uneasy about you know <laughs> shipping out our, our our excess vaccine that we don't want because it's too dangerous to the third world. Because yeah, we 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 bought excess vaccine hadn't we just mm. to, to, with the expectation that we were going to use as much as we needed and then put the rest of it out but if yeah, yeah. If we're not if we're, if we're not using it because it's unsafe then yeah we we're very very dubious if we are shipping it out to use elsewhere awesome um i think we'll leave it there then i think we've uh, covered lots of uh, things there's lots of niche uh, platelet physiology going on there um i guess the lower risk of uh of um or your 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 argument for there being polymorphisms and platelet receptors and low incidence in people of african ethnicity will in the end probably come down to malaria won't it 
<laughs> as everything does yes <laughs> what an amazing disease okay cool um, right we'll talk again and uh, thanks for uh, for being the first guest well thanks very much for experimenting on me Rich well that was Pip Nicholson who is an absolute font of knowledge on platelets and a pleasure to interview I really hope you've enjoyed listening to this first ever Don't Just Read the Guidelines podcast. Please subscribe, leave me a review, or tweet me at Richard Booker. That's B-U-K-A. In the coming weeks, I'll be interviewing loads more brilliant people. So stay tuned. Don't Just Read the Guidelines is for education and entertainment only and should not be treated as medical advice. I certainly cannot guarantee the factual accuracy of the content, but if you do notice any errors, feel free to send me some constructive criticism on Twitter. Don't Just Read the Guidelines is recorded and produced by Richard Booker, and music is by Scott Holmes.